Exodus 34, I'm going to begin reading in the first verse through the eighth verse. And for many of you, this is uh, something you've already read probably just recently. So, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word aloud this morning. I'd like you to join me, if you would, unite our hearts this morning in a prayer for the people, the nation of Ukraine. Before I do that, let me just read you this little blurb that, that came into my inbox this week. In 1527, a pastor asked Martin Luther whether it's proper for a Christian to run away from a deadly plague. Luther's advice was that every Christian had to come to their own decision and conclusion, and that there are valid reasons why some believers should consider fleeing death and danger. Luther made it clear, however, that some pastors should be expected to stay. Those who are engaged in a spiritual ministry, such as preachers and pastors, must likewise remain steadfast before the peril of death, wrote Luther. We have a plain command from Christ. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but the hireling sees the wolf coming and flees, John 10, 11. Many pastors and missionaries in Ukraine are facing the same threat of death and danger and are choosing to stay. They share Luther's concern that when people are dying, they most need a spiritual ministry which strengthens and comforts their consciences by word and sacrament and in faith overcomes death. One such pastor is Basil Austri. How should the church respond when there is a growing threat of war, when there is constant fear in society, he asks? I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant in a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are the refuge and the strength of your people. When the earth gives way and the mountains tremble and the sea foams, 
When the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, Lord, may none of your children ever live or die in fear. You are the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, the mighty fortress for your saved ones. You make war cease to the end of the earth. You break the bow. You shatter the spear. You burn the chariots with fire. You speak, and the earth melts. There is none like you, and to your goodness we appeal. And in your power we rest. God, we pray for mercy today on the situation in Ukraine. God, we pray for peace. We pray for an end to fighting. We plead for the end of injustice and inhumane acts, for the confounding of acts of barbarism, for the spoiling of evil strategies. And we know that you can thwart the violent plans of men and you are sovereign and strong over the enemy who lives to kill and steal and destroy. We pray for the safety of the citizens of Ukraine, for the refugees to find safe passage and warm and capable reception wherever they choose to go, for the exiles to find homes away from home, for families divided. We pray they might one day be united, and for the stalwart and the staying to know the favor of your hand of protection. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters choosing to remain in a war zone in order to be of help to those who are in need. And God, we ask that you might graciously fill them with your strength and wisdom, with your resolve and with a wonderful sense of your peace. We lift up those, God, the hundreds and thousands who to this point have not turned to you. We pray that this extreme adversity and, and, and the obviousness of their own weakness, Father, would move them to find solace in your presence and the promise of salvation for all who believe. The physical battles are seen. The spiritual battles, just as real, unseen. Let their eyes be opened to both. Let it be your will to bring many sons to glory through this great challenge. Father, we pray for our nation, for our president, for other world leaders, all of whom find their position and authority in you, whether they know it or not. Help them to know and do what is wise and right and courageous and most honoring to you. We ask you, forgive us, Lord, for the violence It's in the hearts of all of us. Forgive us for devaluing the gift of life the way we do, for tolerating the abuse of those created in your very image, for becoming complacent and careless about the needs of others because our own needs are being so generously met. Lead us, Lord, as a body to somehow be part of the answer to the prayers being raised in these moments the prayers raised right here, and the prayers raised by your people in Ukraine. Show us, Father, as United Baptist Church, what we might do in concert with what you are doing. Reveal it to us through prayer. 
open doors for us here to be ministers of mercy to those who are there. We are your children in this world that you made. And we are soldiers in your army. And we live for your glory. And so, we are at your service, Lord. Have mercy and be glorified. Amen. Well, it's nice to see you all. I, uh, I told a couple of people already this morning, I had one of those um, anxiety dreams. Do you ever have those anxiety dreams where, in my dream, we were here, all of us, and many more than all of us, uh, people I didn't know, new families, young families, oh, it's awesome, and we were singing, and, and uh, somebody else was leading worship, and I was sitting out there thinking, how wonderful that was. It was a very realistic dream, and, and it was completely enjoyable until I realized in my dream, there's like two minutes left in, in worship, and then I have to get up and preach. I don't have my sermon. And in my dream, I do... I, I, I did what I would do if that were the case. I literally started to think through my sermon. Like, can I do this? Can I do this without a sermon? Do I know this well enough? And I started in my dream to plot out. This is the text. This This is the main point. This is how it progresses. And praise the Lord, I woke up. And it was one of those... So I have six copies of this sermon here. Today, we are taking no, no chances. What is so glorious about God? What is it about God that made you decide that you would spend time this morning gathering with His people to worship Him? What do you believe about God that convinces you that he is worthy of your praise? What do you see in God that inspires your allegiance? What do you know about God that makes you bend your knee, bow your head, and surrender your life? What is so good What is so glorious about God? Maybe it's been a while since you have thought about God's glory. Maybe you've never thought about it at all. You might be wondering, how would anyone know what's so glorious about God? And why does that actually even matter? A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, answers both of those questions. He writes, The foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of His perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture. So there's the answer to the first question. How do we know about God's glory? Holy Scripture. The Bible reveals the glory of God. And here's the answer to the second. He says, an unknown God can neither be trusted 
serve, or worship. Why does it matter that we know God's glory? Because if we don't really know Him, we won't trust Him, we won't serve Him, and we won't worship Him as He deserves and as we were created to do. Or put in the positive, knowing what is so glorious about God is what moves us to trust, to serve, and to worship. Any struggle you might be having today in any of those areas, trusting, serving, or worshiping, could very well be tied to your understanding of God's glory. And so my goal this morning with this message is for you and for me, for all of us, to be convinced again or maybe for the first time that God is supremely glorious. Father, we humble ourselves to sit under Your Word. We gather in worship to hear Your voice, so we pray it might come through loud and clear. Our heart's desire is to know You. Reveal Yourself to us as we plumb the depths of Your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Show me your glory. That's what Moses prayed, chapter 33. Show me your glory. Talking to God, and that is his request to God. It comes on the heels of some awful experiences that if you're reading through the book of Exodus, you are familiar with, and I am going to presume on your familiarity with the text this morning, actually, and not go through all of those stories and all of those experiences that have led Moses to this place where he's begging God, show me your glory. I just want to sort of summarize it like this. This is where we're at. The Israelites have proven that they are prepared to take their chances, knowing less of the God who delivered them and moving away from him, while their leader Moses wants to know God more wants to move closer to God. So Israel's moving away from God, and Moses wants to move closer to God. It was in the 1970s, Mark Pendergrass wrote a chorus we have sung to God and worshipped many times since then. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. It's a chorus we sing to God. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I want to know you more. I want to know you more. Those of you who love hymnody and hate the repetition can blame Mark Pendergrass. He started this in the 1970s. No, he didn't. I want to know you more. I want to know you more. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. Friend, what's the greatest thing in all your life? What is the greatest thing in your life. One of the most glorious things about God is this, that as much as we know about Him, there's more to learn. Amen? That exasperates a lot of people, doesn't it? I know that, that really floored me in college when I figured out that after four years, I wasn't going to know everything. I mean, I went in there thinking I knew most everything anyway, but I figured four more years dedicated to it, and I'd come out brilliant. Now, when I listen to some of my professors, and they're telling me, Well, I'm not really sure about that. I'm like, come on! You can do better. 
Try harder. There's always more to learn. As soon as you think you've got it figured out, there's more, there's more. The more you look at God, there's more to know. And it's good to want to know Him. And it's good to want to know Him more. And that's what Moses' prayer is all about. Maybe it's for himself personally. He sure could have used some encouragement at that point. God, show me your glory. But probably also knowing Him, it was for the sake of the people that He was supposed to lead He needed to know who He was leading them for. He needed to know who He he was leading them to. So it wasn't just for Him, it was for them, I believe. He prays that prayer that some have described as a prayer that God loves to answer. Show me your glory. The glory of God is the beauty of God unveiled. The Hebrew word translated glory has the connotation of weight. So Moses prays, God, show me your substance. Show me your weightiness. Show me your majesty. Show me, God, what you're really all about. And God says he will. God says he will. He's not going to show Moses all of his glory. No human could stand that. But he will show Moses more than he has seen or heard up until then. And that is where we pick up in our text this morning, Exodus 34, with God entertaining Moses' request, directing Moses once more, come up the mountain for a meeting. Moses goes up to meet God. God comes down to meet him. Verse 5, Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. It's a small detail in some ways, but it is a significant one. I noted it when we worked our way through the book of Exodus a few years ago now. It's worth noting again, listen, no matter how high we climb in our pursuit of God, if we're going to connect with Him, He's going to have to come down. He's going to have to come down. Philip Ryken calls this the, the infinite condescension of God. A manifestation of God's goodness and willingness to condescend in order to be among His people. Most amazingly, of course, in the incarnation of His Son Jesus, who, as one writer put it, departs the throne room of heaven to visit us in the garbage dumps of earth. God comes down. In other religions, humanity strives always to make its way up to God. But in Christianity, God, who knows we can never make it to Him, comes down. Down to us. The Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression as sin and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is where it gets a little intriguing if you're following along closely. Moses, what did Moses ask? He had asked to see God's glory. So we get the sense that Moses wants to see what God looks like. And who isn't curious about that? But there's this whole thing about not making an image of God, right? And if you know what God looks like, then the first thing you're going to want to do is make an image of Him. And if you have an image of Him, you're going to confuse Him with the image. And Oh, there's a whole sermon there. But what did he ask? He asked to see. God's glory. But notice how God answers the request by speaking, by telling him who he is. 
So what is so glorious about God? It's not just his radiant presence, right, that no mortal eye could withstand. It's not his crushing holiness that no frail body could endure. What is so glorious about God is not his looks, for which there are no words adequate to describe, but it is his character. This is what's glorious about God. Moses wants to see God's glory. God wants Moses to hear it. You and I can be a little bit like Moses at times, don't you think? In this, that we want God to show us something. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Oh Lord, oh Lord, show me a sign. I have. I feel kind of bad about it until I read Gideon, that worked out. But anyway... There are times, right, when we ask God to show us something, particularly in seasons of doubt and in affliction, uh, particularly when we come to crossroads, we, we want a sign. We want to know, God, I need to know, God, am I going to make the right turn? Am I going to do the right thing? Show me, show me, show me. And what does God say? I think he says that we would be better served in those times of need to listen. You don't have to worry, and you don't have to look too far if you're willing to listen. Open His Word. Every time you open His Word, His voice speaks. God speaks to Moses, and He reveals His glory. And the first thing God says about Himself, the first thing that we see in this text about what is so glorious about God is that He is merciful. God is merciful. To be merciful is to hold back to not deliver a consequence that is deserved. And God is merciful in that He's willing to restrain His hand from delivering what is deserved. And it's significant, I think, that God reveals this aspect of His glory at this particular time. Because you remember, Israel has broken the law before they ever really received the law. And they have not done so in some minor infraction kind of way. In their worship of the golden calf, Exodus 32, they have absolutely trashed the lead commandment. The first one, only God is God, and you shall have no other gods before Him. You shall not make an idol or an image. Only God is is God. Now look at what these Israelites have done and consider how offensive their behavior must have been while Moses is meeting with God on the mountain to receive and deliver this law. The people abandon God. And they abandon Moses. Hey, look, he's been gone a long time. We don't know what's come of him. Ready to move on from this leader who has led them so faithfully? Ready to move on from this God who has delivered them so perfectly? Who has them standing on the other side of the Red Sea with their enemies floating face down behind them, ready to move on from Him? And a tribute to this great God who with His mighty arm has taken His own people out of slavery, ready to attribute all that goodness that He gave them to a statue 
that they made with their own golden jewelry. They're making their worship an idol, and yet here it is, God. God is merciful. The transgression offends God. It hurts God. It grieves God. It angers God. Because he absolutely is worthy of all faithfulness and all adoration and all worship. But listen, it is his glory to show mercy to those who fail. To withhold from them what is deserved. To show mercy to sinners. To rebels. And if he didn't do that, no one would stand. No one would live. God's mercy is glorious. And as glorious as that is, there's more to it. This word merciful has a connotation of sympathy. It's translated in other places as compassion. So to say that God is merciful is to say not only is he willing to withhold consequences that are deserved, he is a God who genuinely cares. A God who, the writer of Hebrews will say, is sympathetic with our weakness. He is mindful of our frailty. He has pity on us in our struggles. He knows sometimes we create our own problems. We are our own worst enemy. He knows that. He knows our form. He knows that we are dust. And listen, his delight is simply to do good by us. That's what he wants to do. And should we stray, and should we fail, and should we realize our fault and call out to him, He will not turn us out. We use the same word here, Exodus 34, 6, as Psalm 103, 13, as the Father shows compassion, mercy, on His children, so the Lord shows compassion, mercy, to those who fear Him. God is merciful. And God is gracious. What is grace? B.B. Warfield says, grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. John Stott says, grace is love, that cares and stoops and rescues. And I could, I could cite all sorts of beautiful definitions of grace from kingdom scholars throughout the ages. And the common denominator of all of them would be this, that grace is undeserved. Grace is when God freely gives us something we have no right to expect. Something we can't earn. Something we can't work for. Something we don't deserve. To have. So, what is so glorious about God? He gives us better than we deserve. In multiple ways. Multiple ways. He gives us better than we deserve. He blesses us with good things beyond our capacity to ever earn them, gifts from heaven that include salvation and eternal life. Things not merited, but things offered by God to those who will believe. He's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's slow to anger. King James Version, I think, says long-suffering. Today we would say patient. God is patient. Which is to say that he doesn't have a hair trigger. And those of you who do can appreciate that God doesn't. He's not easily set off. He doesn't he does get angry probably every day he would find a reason for God to be angry but it takes him a long time to get to a place of being angry and when he is angry he doesn't lose his temper 
This character of God we hear and see in Exodus is echoed in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, verse 9, where explanation is given for the alleged slowness of Christ's return in the coming judgment. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, we read, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every moment that Jesus does not come is a moment of opportunity for someone to get right with Him before He does. Before the time for choosing is over. Before the consequences of choices for Him or against Him are eternally set. God is slow to anger. God is patient. And I know that I am a beneficiary of God's patience. Add to that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is love. It is His glory to be loving, to show love. And His love is not like human love, which can be fickle and unpredictable and conditional and given or withheld as a reward or a punishment. No, God's love is abundant. God's love is generous. God's love is liberally given. It is abounding. And this love that flows out of our God is steadfast. That means it is certain. It is true. It is dependable. 100% dependable love. The word here in the Hebrew, hesed, is a word for covenant love. God is a God of covenants. Covenants that that bind people together in relationship. They come with both blessing and cursing. We saw that in Genesis, right? Remember Noah, remember Abraham, Jacob, okay? We see it again here in Exodus. And we see it obviously most beautifully in Christ. Who said, this is my blood. Blood of what? A new covenant. God is a God of covenant love. Committed love. Love that can be counted on. That is abundant and steadfast. Alas, for today, this text shows us that God is perfectly just. Now, if you're looking for that term in your text, you're not going to find it because that's my way of summarizing the two attributes of God that we find near the end of our passage this morning in Exodus 34.7, which says that God forgives sin and at the same time will by no means acquit the guilty. That He is perfectly just. God is forgiving. There's a beautiful word picture here in this term forgiving. It comes from a Hebrew root word that means to lift, to take away, to take, to take off, to carry off. So when God forgives, He lifts the weight of sin and guilt from our shoulders. Which means that one needs never carry the weight of any sin ever committed that has been confessed. It can actually be forgiven fully and completely by confessing it. By calling it what it is, no matter how bad it is, by asking the Lord's pardon. 
That is what the cross is all about. That is what the cross is all about. Jesus died on the cross bearing sin. And if you believe that He died for you on that cross, then your sins were crucified, paid for, right there at Calvary. Why are you bringing them up? My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. This is why why we Christians can sing earnestly and passionately, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is what? Nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my God. too much of your life is squandered when you're ridden with guilt and regret. Too much is wasted when you're worried about what you've done or what you've left undone. It keeps you on the bench when God wants you in the game. He wants you to know, He wants us to know that He is a God who forgives. A God who lifts the burden A God who takes away the guilt. And if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. God wants us to know that He forgives, but I think He really wants us to know this because he, he, He gives it to us, He explains His forgiveness three ways. First, we see God forgives iniquity. That word translated iniquity means perversity, to make crooked. It means to turn aside from what is right and good. Second, we see that God forgives transgression. Transgression has more of that willful um, heart to it, right? A willful bent. It comes from a word that means to revolt or to rebel. So transgression is the defiant choice to leave what is right and do what is wrong. And third, we see God forgives sin, which here means offense from a root word that means to miss, and that's where we get the idea that sin is missing the mark. When we sin, we miss God's mark for us. It falls sort of in that general category of what we might call moral failure. Just missed it. Messed up. Did the wrong thing. So get this. God forgives when we pervert His ways. God forgives when we defy His ways. And God forgives when we miss His ways. Do you think He's laying out a pretty broad ramp for you to get back on the highway? Has He missed anything? No, He has not. And we are grateful for this forgiveness. Amen? Amen. We need it, don't we? And we trust it, and we count on it. And every one of the glorious attributes of God we need every day. We need everyone on our best day. Do you agree with that? Think it through. We need everything God has to offer about Himself every day on our best day. If you think you're getting to a place in your life where, oh, I really don't need much mercy. No, grace, that was then, this is now, I'm good. Slow to anger? I don't ever irritate anybody. Yeah. 
We need it. Every day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I am constrained to be. Every day in debt, we need God's grace. So we rejoice that God forgives. In the same sentence, we are reminded of another truth that he shares about himself. Mind you, this is God telling Moses, this is what's so glorious about me. He shares this about himself. He says that he's a God who will by no means clear the guilty. So who are the guilty that God will not acquit? Are we not all guilty before God? We certainly are. So who are the guilty that receive forgiveness? And the guilty who will by no means be cleared. What is the difference between those who receive God's pardon and those who don't? Because while God is willing to forgive, God does not forgive everybody. The difference, friend, is repentance. Repentance, a change of mind that comes from godly sorrow over our sin and leads us, compels us to forsake that sin, to abandon it, to put it in the rearview mirror and to keep it there and to move forward, to move in a direction where God is glorified, to move into the transformed life that God wants and which we all were created for. Repentance is a posture of the heart that is followed up by words of the mouth. Confession. Confession, the acknowledgement that heart change has occurred. And then, beyond that, behavior. How we live. Going in a different direction. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that God will by no means clear the guilty is a word from Him that His mercy and grace are real, that they are accessible, that they are available, they can be called upon, but they are not to be presumed upon. Let none of us think we can come to the end of a self-governed, self-glorifying life with no change of heart and then somewhat randomly have our record expunged. Let none of us be deceived and hardened in heart to think that we can exist in this world on our own terms, but that we will straighten out our affairs with God in the end. Theologian John McKay reminds us of this. The Lord is reluctant to act against His creation even when it's in rebellion against Him. He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance, but He is not forgetful and will not condone sin. At a time of His choosing, He will act decisively against it. And writing to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul reiterates this truth. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will He also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The guilty, God says, will not be cleared. That is devastating enough. But adding to it, their iniquity will be visited upon their children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. 
I know we, we're, we're kind of raised in a society and a culture that wants us to believe that everything we do is just our business. But anybody who's lived in a family know, knows, right, that it's never just our business. Everything that we do and everything that happens to us and everything that other people do and everything that happens to them, it all just sort of weaves together and it becomes everybody's business. And so it is also with this issue of unrepentant sin. That isn't just going to be your burden to bear, even if you're making the wrong choice. Yes, you will bear a burden, but so will others. And in this case, God says, so will your children. So will your grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Friend, this is how serious sin is. This is how damaging sin is. When it is allowed to take root in a person's life, it defiles many. And the consequences of godless choices filter through the generations. Is that a ball you want to set in motion? That is not a ball you want to set in motion. It's not a ball that anybody deserves to catch. All the more reason for you and I to walk circumspectly in this world, to consider our ways, to obey our glorious God, and never to find ourselves in the camp of those who God calls guilty. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is forgiving. He is just. This is how God answered the prayer of Moses. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. I will show you my glory. I am merciful. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love. I am forgiving. I am just. That is my glory, God. Show me your glory. When is the last time you prayed that prayer? When was the last time you prayed that prayer for yourself? There's a bit of a danger, isn't there, in us? The further we get from those moments of repentance and confession and salvation. Some of those mountaintop experiences that we have with our God the more we begin to sort of ease into a comfortable sort of routine. And God becomes in some ways, unintentionally of course, but rather domesticated. Somewhat manageable. And if we're honest, we all want a manageable God. That's not who He is. So what a brave prayer. Show me your glory. When's the last time you prayed that for yourself? When's the last time you prayed that for your spouse? God, show him your glory. God, show her your glory for your children. For the people that you know are struggling. Everybody here knows somebody who's struggling. God, show him your glory. Show her your glory. Show me. Show me. Show them who and how. You are. Well, I take a moment now. You know, sometimes preaching can be a little, a little lofty. We're in the realm of theory, but we're not. We're also in the realm of practice. I want you to think for just a second about who you can direct this prayer for.
And I want you to pause and pray for someone that you know really needs to be impressed by, comforted by, have their world rocked by the glory of God. Let's do that. Bow your head. Just quietly think of that person. Think about that name. And let's pray. some ways when we pray for people to be shown the glory of God, we could probably make it simple and say, Father, show them Jesus. And and show them Jesus in such a way that they will know He is better than. Better than the substance to which they are addicted. Better than the future they think they can create. Better than any idol that could be constructed in the human heart. Better than whatever has a grip on him. Whatever has a grip on Jesus, you are better. Our glorious God has in fact shown us who He is, and how He is. And that is in the person and the work of His Son, Jesus. The glory of God is most clearly seen and revealed to us in Jesus and in the gospel of salvation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, who became man, who lived a life completely free of sin, but on the cross took on Himself the wrath of God that sin deserves. He died for sins. He was raised to life in victory over death. And that is why you and I can trust Him to save us from God's judgment and the wrath that we deserve. Because listen, He took the weight of sin off our shoulders and put it on His own. He became sin who knew no sin that His righteousness would then be attributed to us. So in this way, through Jesus, God did not clear the sins of the guilty. Jesus paid for them. Jesus paid for us. What could be more glorious about God? More merciful more gracious, more faithful, more loving, more just than that He sent His one and only Son into the world that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for this word of yours that pushes us toward your glory. We confess there have probably been times in our lives where we would rather keep you at a distance because your glory is a bit overwhelming to think about. Oh, deliver us from that nonsense, God, and know that we can't push far enough into you. We can't chase after you hard enough, and we can never have enough of you. There is always more to learn, and we praise you and thank you that you are so much greater than our finite minds would ever be able to comprehend. As we leave this place, Father, we do pray that you would show us your glory and recognize as well that you certainly have. We praise you this day for the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world who takes away all our sins. We praise you that you are a glorious God. May we never forget it. May it never run stale in our minds or our hearts, but may it be renewed day by day in our walk with you. Just how awesome you are. We love you, God, and we thank you for loving us. Amen.